Welcome to episode two of the Sound Control Podcast. I'm Caleb Quillen, and this week we have Brandon Mason, who is a bassist in the Detroit Symphony, the newest member of the Detroit Symphony. He won that job in 2019, uh, November of 2019, right before all this craziness hit. He was previously in the Kansas City Symphony alongside myself and Richard. Uh, I've known Brandon for a long time. We, we met at Texas Allstate back when we were teenagers uh and we went to school in boston at the same time we ended up at rice for grad school at the same time and we ended up getting a job in the same orchestra right out of school so i've known brandon a while uh it's nice to talk to him in a podcast format Uh, even though it makes it formal it still feels like an after concert beer um but we talk about the orchestra the first days on the job the first year on the job feeling like what now uh i think a lot of people have that uh, experience when they start their first job uh but we get into a lot of other great topics brandon has some great insights and i think you'll enjoy the conversation enjoy so we can start it start it this way (laughs) i like it so is it, uh, so are you guys, how long are the doubles now for you guys? Is it like an hour for each rehearsal? I mean, they're shorter, which is actually funny because it felt like forever compared to, rehearsals have been shorter because you don't want to be together for too long, right? Yeah. Um, but it's funny because we used to do like two and a half at least, two and a half hours a day, like four or five days a week. Yeah. And now I think last night was... The first rehearsal was an hour and 45 minutes. And then the second one was like an hour and a half. And by the end, it was like, wow. So it's, yeah, it's really, it's, it's crazy how, like, I don't know. I, it, it actually started getting me concerned about once things go back to normal, like I need to build up my stamina before we start going back into a normal rehearsal schedule. Playing stamina or attention stamina? Both. I think, I mean, you can feel it. Like during the second rehearsal, granted, I think we had gone between rehearsals and picked up tacos. And mm, that doesn't help at choice. all. It's like, that's like a sleeping pill. But um, no, you can feel your attention waning a little bit. It was at night. Everything, everything is different right now. Maybe just the novelty of playing like symphonic repertoire again was also... It was really exciting at first and then crashed. Are you guys only doing nighttime rehearsal right now or is it, is it spread out so you guys can clean the hall or how is that set up? Um, well, we were supposed to, we were supposed to have a concert last night, but mm. so usually the way that the week structure has worked, it's two concerts a week uh, and both programs are 45 minutes to an hour roughly. And yeah. um, so you rehearse them a double rehearsal on a Wednesday and then Thursday there's like a dress rehearsal right before the concert mm. and then Friday dress rehearsal before that concert and then on Wednesday you're rehearsing both concerts throughout the day but our COVID tests were later than usual I think like about 24 hours later than usual so we couldn't rehearse on Wednesday and kind of scrambled to figure out a solution and 
moved to a double rehearsal yesterday, and then we're merging the programs into a longer concert tonight. So mm. I think everybody's pretty used to being flexible, though. Like, yeah, I mean, are people still happy to play at this point, or or is it have people oh my already gosh. forgotten that they? Well, I mean, that there was yesterday. We were that that was the first time that people had played like legitimate, like full symphonic repertoire since probably February, and that felt I think I could tell it felt really good for everybody. Yeah. Um, everybody's really happy and. It was just like higher energy. We were playing Beethoven three, and then it's with Yadier Benjamini, the person that we just hired as music director. So I think there was like a lot of like things to look forward to, and then actually going through with it and playing Beethoven three on our like new extended stage. It was really exciting. This is his first uh, first full season, right? That I mean, well, I sort think he's of actually, season. yeah, no, he's actually here more than he was planned to be because I think the hire kind of happened fast. So he was supposed to only do maybe two or three, maybe only two concerts, like concert weekends this whole season. But now that everything is different, he's been, this is his third time. And I think he's coming two more times in the spring. Oh wow. Spring slash summer. So I think it's actually more exposure than we were supposed to have, but, um, I'm sure obviously it's me. His guest conducting weeks all got canceled, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean and and then it's you can't really dig in in with limited rehearsal time, but um there's still enough time to leave an impression and uh you get you know, you get work done in rehearsal and you get acquainted with his style and his ideas and um moving forward if he's going to be the music director this is like really important time however you can get it well what's it been like for you i mean you moved to a new city started a new job kind of all around the same time as uh the covid pandemic hit what's it been like for you adjusting to uh like everything new all at once um i was actually talking to stephanie about it last night um it's actually made some parts of adjusting to an orchestra easier because there, like there's the way an orchestra plays that's different and that's like it's obvious conversation but if you've ever had a job and started a new job every orchestra works a certain way like behind the scenes planning the emails you get how things are posted etc cetera, etc cetera. and if it was blazing by week by week by week by week uh there would be more um, opportunities for error. So, you know, the way that you know, in KC, our schedule is like, you, you can pull it up on your iPhone and you have, you know, you can see a rehearsal schedule or something change. Something changes, it's automatically updated on your calendar and whatever. Uh, and then in Detroit, it's more on like PDFs on like a Google Drive. And like, I mean, these are like, you know, nerdy little details of like how an orchestra schedules and like how you know what you're doing. But th that's how you, you know, don't mess up and miss something. So starting a new um, job with another orchestra it has a lot of procedural differences, just as much, if not more than musical differences. Right. And if you point it out, people don't know what you're talking about. 
Yeah. Like, well, yeah. what do we do it this way? They're like, what other way is there possible? The, yeah, I've been here for 25 years. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> uh, like moving it to like Google Drive might have been like a really big deal at some point. Yeah. Mm. No, one no has. I mean, in like, yeah, yesterday was the first time where there was like a, like I said, like a symphonic orchestra, like timpani, brass, winds, strings all together playing. Again, we were playing Beethoven 3, so that was the first time it felt like uh, what we usually do. Uh, but I think the fact that it's socially distanced and weird um, is novel to everybody. So I don't feel like an outsider or like, a, like I'm having to get used to something that everybody else is used to because nobody is used to this. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I wish I could have more time playing with the orchestra just as probably anybody in the orchestra wishes we could play more. But um, no, it's been, it's been easy. I'm glad that I had experience before this though because rehearsal is so reduced that if I was just fresh out of school, I think you both know one of the first things you feel stepping into a job is like, oh my God, this moves really fast. Like, especially there are like segments in Kansas City season where I remember we might be playing like a Classics Uncorked, which is basically like a miniature subscription concert, a Pops concert, all in the same week. So you're playing like two or three programs and maybe getting a rehearsal each. And coming from a school where you might have been rehearsing a con one concert, one performance, not even a weekend, you might be rehearsing it for a month and a half. Like you just, there's different expectations for what that Wednesday rehearsal number four out of 16 is like, you know, maybe I was guilty of learning pieces in rehearsal, but there's really not much time to learn pieces in rehearsal with a normal symphony schedule. And now, um, you know, we have what we, the first, I think four, four hours of rehearsal total for those two hours of programs. And it's like subscription concert material. So there's a certain expectation both within yourself and with the orchestra to like make it sound good. And yeah. it's just tough with limited time. And if I was a young, uh, a young buck out of school, I think I would be struggling to keep up with the pace for sure. Oh, yeah. And not only that, well, I, I was going to say that the, the, since the ensembles are smaller, there's also more onus on you compared to when the numbers are larger. Like, you can kind of hear what you're doing, which sounds, we're bass players. I mean, it's not that you don't try to play everything really well, obviously, but um, if something doesn't go right, you will know. Um, so I don't know, there's like a, an added pressure, but luckily I'm basically used to it. So starting a second job is much smoother than a first for a lot of reasons too. Yeah, I was just going to say, I would always feel like with reduced rehearsal time comes like just more pressure and focus and, and more rehearsal time. It's not always the case that more rehearsal time equals better product or yeah. efficient use of time. So sometimes I feel like restricting uh, the rehearsal time can be a good thing for the overall product because you get the same level of like work done without tiring everybody out. Yeah. 
so the concert can be energized. But, you know, when you're playing after nine months of not playing in a group, that's probably a little more tough. Yeah. And luckily, I think it felt more than I thought, like uh, riding a bike. Like the first, there was a little bit of like maybe the first 15 minutes where it was like, mm. how do I do this? But um, it feels pretty familiar, even if it's a strange circumstance. I think the danger with shorter rehearsals can be, maybe this is more for conductors, uh, there's like a heightened awareness of the clock because you only have so much time. And it's, it feels definitely like you're rehearsing something that it's like, oh, what time is it? Ah, we need to move on. And like that can be kind of mm -hmm. uh, off-putting, but it's also reality. Like you just don't have much time. That makes me uh, think about the, uh, <clears throat> the first days on the job. I mean, you guys were both there for mine. So <clears throat> it's funny to talk about being nervous for a pops concert and, and being coming from grad school where, like you said, you're going to rehearse things for a month and then you're going to play this huge concert. And then even a pops concert making you nervous after one rehearsal and then having to play a concert and after never having really done that before. But uh, it made me think about the, uh, I mean, I guess we haven't been experiencing this as much, but now since we have, I mean, in KC, we have two rehearsals and then we record. And so it makes it a little bit more exciting. And there have been times before all of this that I'm like, if we had, if we just had less rehearsal, what if our concerts would be more exciting? Cause that has been my experience is that the less rehearsal time, the more exciting the concert is. There's been a, there's been few conductors that I have played under that they could rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. And then the concert is still, you know, it's still exciting and still has energy to it and doesn't feel like it's overthought. Right. So, I don't know how you bridge that gap or how you, uh, how you keep that excitement without, without under rehearsing, but also, you know, you can't over rehearse and to where it just feels micromanaged. Yeah. I think you get used to the speed once you, you know, use the same speed that's off putting it or, you know, much faster than what you're used to when you start the job. <clears throat> once you get used to it, it becomes your baseline. And then you kind of get used to being ready to go after four rehearsals, maybe less, depending on, you know, if we're playing, you know, if the, if the bass, as a bass player, if you're playing like a WC orchestra piece, like your challenges aren't extraordinary usually. So like maybe by the time the concert's rolling around, you're like, yes, I can play this. Um, and yeah, it's, it's ready. Like, you know, um, and that, but more, maybe more than that, you're playing concerts every week week after week after week. So you get very used to being on stage. Um, and eventually you never nervous, like not even remotely. It kind of feels like you're in your living room. Like, yeah, I'm sitting on stage. And yes, I spend half my life here. <laughs> it's hard to be nervous when you know. So um, I do think that if it's if it feels maybe a little undercooked, that adds a little pressure where it's like, you better pay attention because like, I'm not really sure how this transition is gonna go, et cetera, et cetera. And then sometimes that's actually where really great performances happen. Um, I feel like there's some, there are some great conductors who kind of have a controlled chaos aspect. I've heard this about Girgiv, like maybe 
maybe to the extreme, like he'll be an hour late and then he'll just cue the downbeat and go out into the audience and listen. And it's just like, what are we doing? And then the concerts are really great. So um, maybe controlled chaos and like making the musicians feel anxious is <laughs> actually <laughs> like a, an effective way to get a little extra out of the orchestra. Because yeah, I would, say it is, to... I would say it is a tactic that I feel conductors definitely think about. I mean, Richard, you've done some conducting over the past couple of years. I mean, do you have any thoughts about that? Where it's like, you're almost, you know that the people on the job are not nervous anymore to play a concert. So how do you, how do conductors play those little games with their orchestra to get them to be excited for it? Because some of them do, I mean, it tends to be guest conductors, right? It's not usually the conductor that's been there for a while. Well, you're used to, you're right, yeah. Well, I, uh, you have to remember, I don't really have the privilege of conducting professionals most of the time or ever. So, you know, I think that for amateur musicians, it is nerve wracking to play a concert. Like, especially with my community orchestra that I conduct, we only have uh, four rehearsals before the concert for about, you know, like 45 minutes to an hour worth of music. So for them, that's like a pretty, um, a fast paced schedule. And I set it up that way kind of on purpose so that we could get multiple concerts in a summer without, you know, the typical community orchestra schedule, which is like one rehearsal a week for three hours. And then, you know, eight rehearsals and then a performance or something like that, right? I really didn't want to do that for all the reasons that we were just talking about. Because then you just go into autopilot mode if you're in that orchestra. I mean, it was the same thing in college orchestra. It was the same thing in youth orchestra. We're rehearsing the same pieces. I mean, yeah, I mean, you have a vague idea that, okay, I've got the big concert coming up in the future. So the professional schedule, the you know, quick turnaround for rehearsals perform, I think that's, that's kind of around the right amount. And uh, in terms of your question about, do I like, I don't know, as a conductor, I kind of suspect that conductors importance can be overstated a lot. I think the conductor has the potential to ruin a performance and a conductor can do a few things to make a performance really special, but for the most part, the orchestra is gonna sound like the orchestra within a certain range of like the best the orchestra can sound and the worst that the orchestra can sound. And the conductor can like move things around in this area, but they can't really just like walk in and completely change the way things sound. So, you know, that old school mindset of like, you know, give the downbeat go out in the audience and listen to how it sounds that's kind of when you said that it made me think like well the orchestras that Gergiev is conducting he's probably not thinking like i need to make this orchestra better he's just thinking you know that they sound how they sound and they're professional and they know how this piece goes but uh yeah, how you know sometimes i think like the way Kansas City is with the amount of classical versus pops versus pit that we do, we can't always get in the groove of the classical concert to the point where we 
where a conductor could do that for us. Like we don't we don't play like 25 subscriptions a year where uh, they give it downbeat and we can just play because we were just playing similar quality repertoire the week before. Yeah. So I don't, you know, some of the things that apply for some orchestras don't apply uh, for Kansas City for various reasons. I think something like that is hard to articulate clearly if you're not familiar with that feeling of like, you know, why can't, obviously you can just play a classical week after you played the Nutcracker, but there's reasons why it would be suboptimal uh that I, th I think you only know if you've experienced them but um getting in the is a group, nice way of putting that <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it really just depends i mean if you played like if you were playing nutcracker with simon rattle conducting with uh, a large orchestra for a subscription weekend that would be a very different experience but um it's getting familiar with the sound of your orchestra in a certain context with a certain repertoire. Like if you're if you're playing a classical week after a pops or movie week where the orchestra is half mic'd, it's just like you can't calibrate the sound of the orchestra accurately from week to week. And I mean, it's like feels like first world problems, but um, there is something to be said for the group, like week after week, getting very familiar with a way of playing and. Um, I think there's also a danger in that, like that in itself can become very monotone and you get used to that um, in a way that makes what, like we were talking about earlier, if you were on stage and felt like it's always the same week to week, there's a danger in that feeling like there's nothing special about it. I do think, uh, you know, my years in Kansas City, when we do get to play subscription concerts, especially if we feel like they sound good, I think there is an added appreciation to that week. Like, there, I'm very excited to be playing those concerts. And if you're playing 30 subscription concerts a week, that might, you know, you might get the same, you might feel that way the same number of times throughout the season with twice as many chances. So everything is pros and cons. Well, what do you think about, I mean, Caleb and I have talked about, uh, you know, what makes the job satisfying, what makes the job gratifying for players in the orchestra, uh, including section players. Like, do you have thoughts about what, what do you believe about an orchestral performance career could be tweaked to make the job satisfaction level go up and stay up throughout somebody's career? I think it's, it just depends on your perspective. I've never really struggled that much. It depends on, um, I mean, this is like, this is a time of year when I think everybody might be struggling with it a little bit, like back in Christmas time concerts. Like if you're playing five weeks of Christmas performances and the same one over and over, it's harder to feel like grateful, um, even though I think the pandemic has highlighted that we should be feeling grateful to do what we do, like no matter what you're doing. But I, I don't think that I've struggled much with feeling like I'm small 
or like unimportant in an orchestra because I feel like when there's, especially like for concerts, but even in rehearsals, there's like a part on my stand and it fits into a great piece of music. And there's a lot that I can do to play better all the time. Like there's never something that I, I'm never playing all the things I want to exactly the way I want to. Um, I never feel like I am hearing everything, you know, that I need to hear in order to like really dive deeper into the piece. There's always like more, there's kind of a carrot on the stick feeling all the time of I could phrase that better. I could fit this in better. This could be more that. And I think I've described it before, like my, the reason why I really love playing in an orchestra in like a bass section. In a bass section, you don't really hear yourself 100%. Um, you kind of like, kind of hear yourself and then there's this fog of bass sound. And it feels like you're kind of on this train. Like your sound is everybody else's sound. And then that's like at the bottom of the orchestra. And it feels like you're, you can kind of disappear a little bit. Like it's not about you. Um, like, especially when it's a richer bass part, like eight or 10 players playing, it just feels like you're part of this world of sound. And I don't feel like it's about me and how I want it to sound. And it feels like really relieving that way. It's just like you, you're contributing, but like, I don't feel like there's an ego in it. Um, but then it also brings this personal individual level satisfaction that's really, really gratifying because it feels like everybody together kind of becomes one thing and gives you a kind of energy and attention and focus that seems to be difficult to obtain some other way. Um, but I guess as far as like what can be done, I think my answer is like, it just has to occur at an individual level first. Um, and if you, if you feel like you need to be featured uh, in order to be important, um, then that's gonna bring a world of pain <laughs> in orchestral life. Unless you're a concert master or whatever, or a, a principal wind player. Well, I think you do have features all the time. You know, the contract you sign when you become a bass player is like that. Very rarely is anybody going to care about what you're doing unless you're screwing it up. <laughs> you know? right. And that's just something you have to make peace with as you go through your career. But yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily about like being featured or being like applauded or anything like that. I think it's just more about how do we help uh, the musicians in the orchestra feel connected to what's going on around them. Yeah. I, th like, I think there's a, uh, sorry. sorry. Oh, go, go ahead, ahead, go ahead. I, I think uh, what you're saying, Brandon, about all of this has to be done from an individual level. I think that is true. And I think there's no way of getting around that. But I also think that there is a sense of autonomy that orchestras could and have uh, put in place to make people feel like they are creating something of their own and feel a little bit more uh, important in terms of what is actually happening in the organization and not in, in a creative way. Because 
I mean, it isn't necessarily that we got into this to be creative because we are playing music that was composed by other people and we not, not all of us are composers, right? Most of us aren't, but, but there should be some level of uh, creative aspect of the job. And there is within our individual stand, right? Like we can approach the music from a creative way and see if other people want to come in on that in terms of a phrase or, or, or how we play. But I still think there could be improvement on, on, on uh, from, from the orchestra to the individual level, you know, set, be it like chamber concerts or programs that are put on by the musicians, which we have some in Kansas City, but it's not a lot. And most people aren't, uh, aren't helping with the programming or aren't able to program the things that they want. Um, so I, I think it's more about that than about just making people feel like they are, are important, maybe. Yeah, I think maybe the pandemic forces the issue a little bit. Um, we're kind of being forced to do things however we can, which is usually smaller, which features more individual contribution, usually virtually. But um, the way that it's been going here is people will volunteer to do different types of outside work where you might be going into the community virtually and playing a concert for you know somebody that's undergoing a chemotherapy treatment or uh, some like a music education class or whatever. And that is also, I mean, it really just depends on the person in the orchestra. There are going to be certain people in any orchestra that feel like that is the most rewarding thing that they can do. And uh, that's, it's an extremely important element to uh, being in an orchestra in a particular city is serving your city. Um, I, I think it's, it's tricky because to give everybody a sense of value, it's kind of a loaded term, like whatever value means to each individual person means something different. But I don't know. Um, like, do you, do you guys have any like ideas? For, I think like, like the, we've talked about uh, just making sure that there's like a level of respect that goes vertically throughout the organization and like a level of uh, understanding that ev how qualified everybody is for their job and not ever feeling like ignored or disdained from leadership in the organization, musical or administrative leadership. And, uh, you know, a culture in the orchestra of excellence, of feeling uh, where all the musicians, you know, don't just come in and, and do a good job, but they, they believe that it's important to come in and do a good job. Yeah. You know, where uh, you can feel like even on your worst day, like I'm a member of this symphony, you know, that, yeah. that means something. But I think that's a culture that has to be developed. And part of that is like musicians feeling pride and taking it upon themselves to do it. And then there's, but there's also like a level of you feel about yourself, like you're treated by others at the same time. So if, if you have, you know, the audience and the administration 
treating you like an artist rather than like a, a cog that yeah. you're going to be, it's going to be a lot easier for you to come into work and feel like what you're doing really matters. Well, I think a certain amount of pride is absolutely necessary. Um, you don't want to be pompous, but mm -hmm. if you can feel like a pride in what you're doing, that's helps you play better. I mean, it, you, you do, you have to play with a certain sense of commitment and decisiveness and if I think if you're feeling like it's just you're a cog in the machine, um, it's hard to feel like you should play that way. But I think there's lots of stages leading up to a career that can lead you down a murky path where you might become somebody that uh, joins an orchestra and then you don't know what to do once you're there. Um, like, you're, the way that we train to gain entrance into an orchestra, uh, the audition process can have a lot of baggage that takes away from the point. And then therefore you, know, you, you might enter your position fully capable of playing all the notes on the page, but not really having a reason and not having an understanding of context to bridge those notes between you know you and what's going on um and i don't say that just as like an on-stage comment i do think this is like a whole mental phenomenon of musical training that it's a little bit frustrating i think you have to to a certain degree especially as like an older student commit to taking auditions in a serious way that is like solely like your world the, the geographical center of your world is the next audition um, because it, they're just very difficult to win. So you have to figure out what process works for you and practice a lot and get everything to this level that is kind of um, foolproof or at least waterproof from, uh, from audition to audition. Uh, and I think if you do that for too long and you grind a little too hard, there's this kind of like years long burnout that you can experience. Uh, I feel like I've witnessed this at a personal level and I've witnessed others going through it. You kind of like make everything about you because you have to for a long time that, um, at a, like you, you keep on going in that direction, even though you're done, like you, you obtain the job or whatever. And then like you look up after a couple of years, and it's like, what, you know, what have I been doing? Um, and that can, I think that can contribute to this feeling of like, well, what's, what's the purpose I can play all of this. And, um, but I think I, I, I don't have like a, I feel like I don't have a great answer to like how we make improve uh, the best aspects of a job. Um, but I, I do think that it's kind of the, the word associated with like where the improvements can take place are more like global and like esoteric. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of tricky because we're almost talking about as if you can pump purpose and, and meaning into somebody's life that is a musician on stage and how they get used to that 
Um, but I think, I think what you're getting at now is there might be a deeper issue and a topic that, that, uh, that we've talked about before, but the, the audition mindset, you know, I, I've experienced on a personal level that it can be detrimental to actual music playing or sorry, uh, musical playing. Uh, well, but, but it's, uh, but it, now that I'm thinking about it and it, it could have a deeper issue within a whole generation of people that, that only focus on, on winning an audition and, and don't look for the deeper, uh, purpose within or, or, uh, or deeper meaning within the music they're playing and why they're doing it and, and what they can get from thinking about it in a different way than just slow practice and, and, and nailing the audition and, and doing and yoga. Then, and yeah. And then you have, yeah, that audition. Uh, I just did yoga. I'm not, I'm not yeah. disparaging yoga. It's like military, you know, it's like we, we pump it out and, and there is a sense of like blue collar, uh, blue collar mindset when it comes to auditions, not, not saying there's anything wrong with blue collar jobs, but, um, but now yeah, yeah, you have a generation of people that get into these orchestras. And so that's a lot of people who spent their whole lives working towards an audition. And then you take that carrot away from them. And, and then there's this whole feeling of like, well, what now? Yeah. And I've experienced this sometimes, you know, but go ahead. Well, it's like a gymnastics routine. And you watch the Olympics every four years. Maybe you're a gymnastics fan, you watch all the time. But uh, you watch the Olympics every four years and you see, especially like the women's floor routine where they're doing crazy spins, like spinning like four times while doing a backflip. And it's like, how are they doing that? And it, obviously they're like top athletically gifted people, but then they focus in on doing this floor routine, like this one, for maybe a whole year, maybe longer, and they've been working on these moves for a decade. Maybe, you know, they might've started gymnastics when they were three, and now they're 16, like, you know, on you know, a billion people watching. Uh, but they've been focused on doing this thing and achieving this kind of perfection in performance for that long. And uh, it's incredible. But like you don't understand how long they've been working on it just by like, you know, I've been playing Beethoven five since I was 15. Like, I hope I can play it by now. Um, and like, whenever you play Beethoven five on stage, it's not really, it doesn't feel anything like working on Beethoven five for an audition in, in ways that are preferable. Like, I think for me, I don't like playing excerpts. Like, you know, you, you get to this point, I think I actually avoided taking auditions for a while because I didn't want to be doing that. Um, but it's like you have your gymnastics routine that is different from city to city, but like you're bringing the same stuff. Uh, meanwhile, what you actually do when you get to the job is not a gymnastics routine. Um, so I, I, it, it is difficult, I think, coming from a lifestyle where you're, especially like, like I was saying, the last few years of school, um, like, you know, audition forward. You might even like after school go to a place like New World or wherever, and then there's like a whole industry of taking auditions and winning them. So I think the, the amount of focus that it takes 
really can be misleading spending if you spend too much time in that world. Um, and it's also self-defeating to where if you, if you make it all about taking auditions, um, it's also, you can also set you up for failure um, because you're, you have your priorities in the wrong place. So. Yeah, I would even go as far to say that if, if you start focusing on that, that whole audition mindset too early, you can actually stunt your growth a little bit and uh, impede on a possibility of, of winning an audition later on that you might enjoy more, yeah. I think. And, you know, maybe it's a, it's a, a orchestra that's in a higher tier or whatever, you know, we, we call it. Um, I mean, it, it's, there's no getting around having to eat and, and having to make money. So that's tricky because you don't want to, uh, people have to, you have to win a job, make money, you have to make a living. But I think if people were more patient with themselves and actually, and I'm telling this to myself, you know, uh, early on, it, that if I was focused on the right things and what was actually important, then I think the, the auditions will come, the, the success will come if your head is in the right place, if you're, uh, if you're focusing on what's, what's most important in music. Um, but, but again, that's, that's hard because you, there is a positive, a positive part to, uh, to preparing for an audition and thinking about way, uh, thinking about the music in an in a way that is like, okay, well, I need clarity and I need, uh, pitch needs to be on point and all of these things that you need. And it isn't, it, it isn't bad to be able to play something really well, and really proficient, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think that can go too far to where the burnout starts to kick in and, and you don't even know why you're doing it anymore. It's just yeah. you're waking up, going to the practice room, and I guess this is what I'm doing for the next, you know, three years. And so I, I think, a, it, yeah, it's like a haze. Mm -hmm. It's a formless, shapelessly like uh, you can play all of those things without thinking about it. And maybe that's part of the problem. I was, you know, I'm really, really grateful. I think going back to um, why I don't feel like that frustrated with my like a role as a section bass player or like you know, on stage, whatever I'm doing most of the time. The, I'm really grateful to Ed Barker and my undergraduate, my teacher and undergraduate, um, the rep class that he taught and Todd Seabrook, they both taught rep class at different times while I was there. And the way that it worked is we would usually, I think when uh, Ed was teaching it, they would bring repertoire because BSO is playing lots of repertoire. They would bring whatever they're playing or whatever they're going to play um, to the rep class. And I think my first year there, maybe it was my second, but my one of my first years there, they were doing a Beethoven cycle. So the BSO was playing nine Beethoven symphonies that year. And what a better time than then to go through all the Beethoven symphonies. So we, we learned all the Beethoven symphonies throughout the rep class. It wasn't about like a core curriculum. Um, so we would play, you know, maybe Beethoven symphonies, maybe like Mendelssohn three, which you might not see on auditions, but if you've ever played Mendelssohn three, it's 
harder than Mendelssohn for. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, different things that would pop up throughout their schedule, and it would usually align with a kind of core curriculum. And uh, we would go through the part movement by movement and play basically all of it. I mean, we wouldn't spend too much time on more simple parts, but we went through all of the orchestral parts kind of like it was a cello part in a string quartet, and we played the whole thing. And uh, they would both demonstrate just little here and like two measure bits, um, how to play like this little accompanimental line and how it relates to what's going on. And we would work on shaping, you know, two measures. And I think usually in an orchestral part, that's like the most challenging thing that shows up in a bass part is like, it's not a full blast excerpt, but like you, it's, you know, you're playing along with the rest of the orchestra. Um, you know, in unison with the rest of the string section, it's like the basses are kind of exposed in piano, but it's like kind of a section solo or it's just with the cellos and it's very delicate, but it's only two measures. So you can't ask it on an audition, but those two measures are the ones in the concert that are like, mm. if you're not ready. And playing those in a rep class, first of all, it brought the focus to the piece and so to like playing something in a, with a chamber music mentality. And um, then when we got to the excerpts, I mean, we, we did spend the bulk of the time on things that were more excerpt materials, but going through the piece that way, transferred over to our orchestra rehearsals and so I, I was doing gigs and other things. And I felt like it overlaid so naturally onto playing in context that um, I probably don't even understand how grateful I should be for that because I think it, it planted the right seeds. But spending my time that way, like I, I wasn't thinking about taking professional auditions for real until I got to grad school. And I think part of me was like, yeah, I'm not ready. You know, I felt like you have to be really ready. So, you know, I'm not ready and I never will be. Um, and that's not good, but I, I think I was spending a lot of mental energy and time not thinking about the process of taking an audition and all the, all of the little nooks and crannies of what that means. So by the time I did start preparing for them, no, I wasn't ready for the first few because I feel like we all kind of can fall on our face the first few auditions. But I think I had a healthy musical diet that led into a better and like more exponential curve once I started taking them seriously. Um, so I would hope that for more and more people, that is their experience of uh, going into a musical career. It's like this kind of wholesome global purpose and reason for doing it. So like your carrot on the stick is not another audition. It's that two measure phrase in Mendelssohn three that's so hard for some reason but like, you're never gonna have to play it on stage in front of the screen. And like, luckily you won't. <laughs> right. Well, I always thought, you know, what you're talking about, Brandon, a lot of valuable stuff in there. Like the thing that makes people get good enough to win auditions is like awareness, right? It, but I feel like neurons in your brain, they can only grow at like, you know, like millimeters at a time like they grow so slowly that it's 
people's development is like over years. But you have to work on it for a long time. Like I, I remember like being a high school player and like thinking about bass in terms of like shifting left hand, you know, playing loud, that kind of a thing. And it wasn't until later where I started to uh, realize like, oh, wow, sometimes I sound like really bad when I'm playing in orchestra. You know, <laughs> like sometimes I just can't play in tune whatever, whatsoever. So it's like you have these like little revelations that make you have heightened awareness. I, but the problem is, is that instead of developing that awareness, too many people, or maybe just this is anecdotally in my experience, but a lot of bass players especially have this mindset of like, I've got no illusions. I know that I'm going to try and win the gig. So like from, from the time I'm a, you know, entry level freshman year, just started, it's all about hit the licks. And if you're trying to play <laughs> solos, you're an idiot because you're never going to be a soloist. You know, you ever hear people give you that speech or anything? Of course. Like, of course. But the anecdotally, like, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna kill all of your inspiration right now. Yeah, exactly. Let's let's get the gig. And if you don't play loud, and if you don't play as clear as possible, and you can't play in tune, you should just quit. Yeah. <laughs> don't you know what audition committees are listening for? In tune, in time, and that's it. Any questions? Go practice. Yeah, exactly that <laughs> that mindset. But the thing is, like all those people, like either don't have jobs or like they got a job and then quit because they hated it. You know what well, I mean? Well, that's setting yourself up for really hating a job for sure. Because yeah. again, like what are you trying to do the whole way there? You, you, you kind of, you have, um, what's the, you have atrophied muscles in your brain that you never develop. Um, and I, I like that you said it's about awareness or like it's eventually achieving success. I think usually correlates with like increased awareness about different things about what you're doing. Maybe not even playing, but like in your life. But um, I found, you know, throughout preparation, really, it's like there were moments where it felt like things were just never changing, and then suddenly it got a lot better. And it was always correlated with just increasing my awareness about something, or kind of paying attention to. Like uh, my, my first big little breakthrough for taking auditions. I like that, like, I know we probably didn't want to talk about auditions, but like, this is so, like, you could talk about this for like 10 years. Yeah. Like, let's just leave, let's just record for 10 years. Um, but we, it's, it's on record. We're, we're, yeah. We've got time. <laughs> Don't make your life about auditions, but like, I have a lot to say about them. Um, I think when I was first starting to see success, I was recording myself a lot and trying not to be afraid of that um, and listening to it, really trying to be objective. Uh, and by that, I mean, listening to it for real. Cause I think I, th this might be more of my personal struggle. I don't know how common this is, but like sometimes I think I'm hearing something I'm not like um, getting closer to reality is the problem. Like, I think that it sounds a certain way and then I'll listen back and it doesn't sound really how I thought it did. And I think that's why a lot of people hate recording themselves is because you listen back. It's like hearing the sound of your own voice. Do I really talk that way? Um, so I remember listening back and noticing, just trying to be like forgiving of what I was doing, first of all. And, um, you know, if, if it doesn't sound good, like 
no use beating yourself up, just like listen. And I started to like notice more and more habits and little um, things that would happen regularly in my playing that were like, huh, why does that keep happening? Then I would record video and see these things happen. But I would spend time, like uh, I think the first time that I had real meaningful success in an audition, that whole preparation, I spent a lot of time just listening back to myself. Sometimes I would record whole practice sessions and notice where my attention went away. And um, like I just started kind of like messing around and not really practicing. And then when I came back to the base the next day, it's like, oh yeah, I'm doing that thing again. And, you know, you kind of cut that uh, habit. Or every time you notice it, it gets weaker. But um, just like bridging this like gap between what you think is going on and what's actually coming out is in its own way gratifying and um, helps you achieve some other level, not just you know in your preparation for an audition, but as a musician, you wanna hear what you're doing accurately and be able to judge accurately what's going on. Uh, and now I'll even do that with recordings of the orchestra. Not that you can hear yourself in an orchestra, but in Kansas City, I would listen to the dress rehearsal and concerts every weekend. And I know that's kind of, I'm a little bit obsessive in that way, but I wanted to understand what, what it felt like on stage to play the bass part. And then what, I, what was actually being picked up, you know, by the mics, which isn't total reality, but closer to reality. And I think that it actually opened up my ears a lot too. Um, and kind of deepened the grooves of learning the piece, whatever we were playing. So I think anything that I played and then listened to and performed three times is like, you know, deeply ingrained. But that I find is like part of the satisfaction in the continuing satisfaction is like, deepening my understanding of what's actually going out, uh, what, what sounds are actually being made and how it's actually fitting in. Um, to the, yeah, to the I, ensemble. I, uh, on, on the topic of awareness, I remember, it's funny how, how tunnel vision we can get um, as musicians preparing for something and we forget to just listen to music. Like I, I have, I've been guilty of that I remember I, at, at, when I was at NEC, I, you know, you're taking, this is like the last year I was there and I was taking all these auditions and feeling like I was just, I don't know, burnt out in, in some way. And then uh, I started listening. I, I worked in the music library at, at I think it's called Firestone. Um, but I was just listening to music every day, something different, something not just what I was working on. And that awareness of, or, or just doing that all the time was already, and, and being focused on it was, was creating a sense of musicianship that I don't even think I was realizing. It was just, oh, here is something played in a way that I haven't really thought about. And, and, and then that leads to a little bit more joy in, in what we do. And so I think people forget that, at least at least I did. Maybe I'm the only one, but I, I doubt it. Um, but that leads me, you know, you talked about in in the bass class with with Todd and Ed that you guys were focusing on little two measure increments, like you would be in the in the ensemble. Did that? Do you feel like thinking about it 
think having that, uh, having that early on that training of musicianship early on helped you to decide or, or be more decisive or trust yourself in musical decisions later on. Cause you, you were, I mean, maybe it's, this is just a bass player thing, but sometimes I feel like that comes later. Like once people feel like once I've cooked in technique, once I've cooked in all these other things, then I can start thinking about music and then I can start thinking about phrasing. Yeah. Um, I think it was the right thing for me as a young impressionable student. Um, I remember the first rep class, I think it was the first rep class we played, it was Brahms too, uh, which obviously you could like, you could work on the chunks of Brahms too that are gonna show up on all these auditions. Mm -hmm. But uh, I remember at the end, um, it's at the end of the first movement when the theme comes back and the basses have it, it turns into and I remember Ed playing it because we were going to work on that because it's just like it's one of my favorite moments of the piece because you have like this stretched out beautiful uh, melodic line where like Brahms had this ability to write these bass lines that were foundational and melodic at the same time, which is, it's awesome. Um, but Ed played this part and it was just like, yeah, that's exactly how I want it to sound. And just like getting, really wanting to sound like that, but not just taking from like, he sounded great, but just working on something that is not, you know, the, the audition material. And then I think we were actually playing Brahms to a few weeks later in the school orchestra and then kind of overlaying that onto how we played in the school orchestra. I just feel like it, there was a nice mix of playing like in a way that is a foundational piece of the orchestra, being a bass sound and playing a bass part in a way that supports, but also in a way that was virtuosic and really tailored in a chamber music mentality. Um, that's like kind of answering the question, but like having that, as a youngster was um it set me up to like think of things that way and i really really again i, I appreciate that a lot i think i got very lucky with with that uh kind of beginning to my more serious like career in music development but yeah i, I we we have plenty of as as bass players i know this is bass podcast today but as bass players we um we have plenty of material that's not quote important that is absolutely important and you can you can treat with um the same kind of care that you would if you were playing Brahms two for five string players or you know some kind of chamber reduction i don't see any other way of playing i mean if you feel like you have to be like really careful and like fit in to like this strict rule of like this is how we play in an orchestra. I just don't think that that works and it has weird baggage. Um, like you should feel part of a team that's agreeing on playing everything generally the same way, um, but not trying to sound like your stand partner and giving your own contribution. And I think that's kind of how you feed it. 
like there's I don't know I, I I feel like I can indulge in the simplest little pizzicatos or whatever yeah I, think I, I hope any you know if you're like if you were a young bass player listening to this like I hope that that's kind of how you feel in orchestra and if you don't enjoy playing an orchestra because it's like you feel like it's you're unimportant I challenge that I challenge that greatly that's 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 an art and art form in itself is is experiencing the group playing with the group but also incorporating your individual opinions uh i think that is something that is more mysterious than people give it credit and something that people do it, it i think it comes more natural to others than uh or to some than to others maybe it's more innate uh, or, or just it, it's an experience that happened earlier in someone's career and then they brought that into their professional life. Playing in orchestras early on, maybe playing in orchestras in high school more often. Whereas that maybe not, may not be the case for a lot of people. But uh, how do we describe that, uh, maybe that technically, that, you know, because it is a hard decision to make sometimes because if you're not principal, if, if you're not, uh, if you're not a title player, how do you bring yourself into the ensemble without overstepping your boundaries? And, and how do you realize when you're overstepping and how do you realize when you're only playing into the ensemble and never really putting yourself forth? I think that's, yeah. That's something that is maybe a learning curve and it's probably different within every ensemble. Uh, but people should feel, I think the best ensembles that I've played in, I have felt like I could do that without question. Yeah. And yeah, I was should, given I, permission to do that. Yeah. 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 Like at the highest level, you are feeling like you're free to play. Um, I think, an exercise in that is like you were talking about listening, just listening to music, like listening to great string quartets play. If you listen to the way that the cello is treating things, it's just no different. I mean, they might have more solo lines. It's just no different than what we have to do right. in our bass parts. I mean, certain pieces bring it out more than others, but um, I just don't feel that much different. It's not like you're controlling 100% of the sound like in, if you were the only voice but if you're following all of the kind of rules of ensemble playing, um, there's definitely enough gray area to bring out your own personality. I think something that was really helpful in my development was I was an undergraduate right around the time YouTube was starting to explode. <laughs> and uh, the Berlin Philharmonic Digital Concert Hall was coming out. And I just remember watching a ton of like performance videos. So not just listening, but being able to see orchestras perform and like what it looks like. And there's no better example for like how we should do it than Berlin Philharmonic. You see an orchestra like that, and it's a collection of individuals all sounding uh, very unified. Like everybody's kind of doing it their way but they're all staying within the same uh, philosophy. 
and contributing in a big way at an individual level to create this larger than life um, thing. Um, it's like this giant organism that, that it looks like that orchestra is breathing to, you know, at the, looks like a big musical uh, machine that's like alive and it's an incredible sound. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think I, I, I would hope that I, I, I don't feel in touch with uh, how people are being trained. And I, I've been out, I think I've been working longer than I was in school at this point. It's not to say that I'm somehow old, but I, I, I would hope that most people's diet is a little bit more well-rounded uh, and that kind of brings something more valuable to a career. Yeah, I kind of feel, the way I feel about musicality and, and how people should play inside of a section or how it, the way it feels good to play inside of a section, to me, it's kind of like, you have to be able to see the current underneath and it and i don't think we give ourselves enough patience honestly as students as former students you know i think learning you you were talking about brahms too earlier appreciating brahms too or brahms in general is not necessarily something that just like everybody who picks up an instrument can just instantly love brahms too or understand why it's beautiful or why it has so many layers of complexity. I think that for most people, when you first pick up an instrument, you like to play pieces that are like fun to play and are catchy. And that's like everybody's entry level into being instrumentalist. It's like fun to play and catchy. Okay, well, I remember then like later in high school, I played Brahms one in a youth orchestra. And the youth orchestra, you know, that's a big stretch for a youth orchestra to be able to play that piece because it's so complex and rich. And I don't think we got it until maybe like I had a feeling that, oh, this is a special piece of music, maybe like on the dress rehearsal. You know, but now when I listen to the piece, I think like how it's so obvious all the cool things and beautiful things that are going on in this piece. But that's because like over years and years of doing musical related activities like my brain is being molded to be able to see these things i kind of think about it like i was watching the national dog show have you guys ever watched that yeah i did i did recently but i only watched the the was it it was on thanksgiving right yeah yeah i did watch a greyhound portion actually <laughs> i have a greyhound um but the the winner was like a Scottish, just giant, like horse of a dog. Scottish deerhound, yeah. It, it, its head was like up to your armpits. The reason anyway. I bring up the dog show is because, you know, like I was watching it with Angela and, you know, she like wanted the prettiest dog to win in each category, you know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. Which is probably like what most of America who is watching that is thinking. You're like, oh, that dog is beautiful. I hope that dog wins, right? But the judge is looking at like a whole lot of things that we're not even aware of. Because it's like, okay, this is the best, you know, dog that was voted best in its breed at this show. And then it, 
the, the judge is picking what are the best in the group, but how do you compare apples and oranges, you know, between this breed and this breed? Is this because we don't, we don't even understand what they're looking for? And that's how steeped in like dog tradition these kennel club people are. And I kind of feel like understanding Brahms and feeling how to enjoy playing in the section there. Like you said, like, I hope young bass players know to like really love those pizzicatos. Well, I think that that's something that you, an emotion, a feeling that you, you don't understand why that pizzicato is awesome until later. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I wonder, I don't actually know how I came to like appreciate the pieces that we normally play, but I think now as a performing professional, I would hope to spend a lot more, you know, I'm trying to do this more and more, spend more time on the other side and like understand the audience because we're so, we have such tunnel vision, especially, you know, we just talked about auditions for a while, but like we're, we become such specialists that we don't, um, we don't ever listen or play with the perspective of somebody that doesn't know the piece or someone that is just going to a concert for a first time. And, you know, the way to make it clearer, like why a piece of music is beautiful or why it's like beautiful and painful at the same time, like that stuff is not, you don't, achieve that by dumbing it down. I think you actually, um, the best way to get there is to stop thinking about it as like, I know this piece and like not really committing to it and just play it way, like, you know, I would say way harder, but that, that sounds like you're forcing the sound, but play it like really with like excellent triple commitment because that will speak to somebody uh, much, much more clearly than saying like, here's the theme and introduction. Well, like that can come later. Understanding the structure of the piece can like deepen your relationship with music. But if you're playing it with like all the gusto that it requires and like all of the character that it requires and really living it, then somebody that's never been to a concert before is more likely to be like, nice. I want to, I want to listen to that again. Because again, going back to somebody or an orchestra like the Berlin Philharmonic, imagine somebody going to that concert for the first time and not thinking it was awesome. And I, I, somebody might not think it's awesome, but like the chance that somebody goes to a, a Berlin Philharmonic concert and walks away feeling like it wasn't like something that was different is pretty minimal. And it's, you know, I, I think of their level of commitment and energy and um, like obvious style and like obvious phrasing and like the whole structure of the piece is clear because they're making it very clear. Um, you don't have to have like a, a book smart education to understand a piece of music. And I, that's something that I, I hope it's like, this is a, like a frustrating, um, or like a frustrated aspect of, um, I think orchestras and how they relate to their audience in the States, at least, or, you know, probably most places, you want the audience to want more. So you try to like tailor the organization to like, you know, go behind the music, have like a pre-concert talk or like all these other things. And that it works really well for 
the type of person that's probably already kind of has one foot in interests in this music. Um, but I think it can very easily feel like a classroom and uh, also like get a little bit away from just like the raw experience of just listening. Um, I remember when I was younger, even when I was like getting into classical music and I knew that I really liked it, going to a concert, feeling like lost as a listener and like distracted and like not really just kind of like, okay, oh, there's the theme, like, you know. Um, and I think, again, like maybe the best thing that we can possibly do is just play with more and more and more commitment to what we're doing and like make it obvious and send a clear message. It's kind of like if somebody were to just go on stage and scream, the audience would be like, I get, <laughs> I understand. But like, if, if you're like playing, you know, you're, it's the third concert in the weekend and like you're tired and you know the piece and like you know what's coming, you can very easily fall into this like kind of statuesque type of playing that I think we're all familiar with seeing, hearing, and at different points being. Um, so I, I feel like I've heard a lot of conversations about how to make classical music more relatable, but like, I just don't know if that's, there, there's like different elements of like it needing to be more relatable that I think are totally legit. But like, really sometimes I think what should happen is we should be playing with more commitment more um, earnestness and sincerity. I think that's that's something that uh, can be elusive, uh, especially when you're kind of grinding a you know, season schedule. Um, mm -hmm. Sincerity nice. is something that is, um, I have to work on that, like really making sure that, especially in say, if you're like playing an audition, I think that the way to take it to the next level is to play something that sounds and feels and expresses sincerely to the listener because that's something that you pick up on so quickly as a panelist. Um, like you, you hear a bunch of people come in over and over again and I feel you could say it's like somebody came in and really made music or like phrase it the way you, uh, you want to with your words. But I feel like if somebody comes in and plays something that it feels like they're playing for themselves sincerely and like you're just there to hear it it connects and then suddenly it's like yes like yes and audience audience members do the same thing if they hear an orchestra play uh kind of like mm, like you know you're kind of this is mezzo forte this is okay here's an accent and it, it's not really like sincere and visceral of course they're bored of course they're not yeah. really connecting to it do you think that, uh, you know, the stereotype is that audience members connect more to like the romantic repertoire? Do you think that that's just because that's the most accessible? Or do you think it's also because, you know, to tag on to what you're saying, musicians and conductors, it's easier for them to play a sincere performance of a romantic piece. And it's much more difficult to do that a very convincing performance of a Baroque or classical piece. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point actually. Cause like if you're playing a Tchaikovsky symphony, it's like very impassioned usually all the time. And then there's also like he was, that guy wrote so many great melodies. 
that stick in your ears. But if I'm listening to music that really makes my head explode, it's like the development section from a classical symphony. Like a, a really excellent development section from like a Haydn or Mozart symphony. Just like I'm listening to it, it's like, oh my gosh, this is like too much. It's crazy. It, it's like there's so much happening and it feels like the music is so good, it's impossible. But I feel like that's easily repertoire that if I'm sitting in the seats as a uh, kid or like somebody that's not familiar with the music, if it's being played kind of politely and neatly and mm -hmm. with like maybe without visual suggestion of commitment, then it sounds kind of boring. And like you might hear it in a commercial for laundry detergent or something. <laughs> yeah, I've been frustrated in the past with conductors feeling like they actively tamp down on musicality in Mozart or in other classical works. Like they, they think, like you said, to play politely, they use kind of like catch-all musicality things like, oh, just taper, taper, you know? Yeah. But like that makes sense in like some circumstances, but in other t things it doesn't really. So right. it's really well, then, round peg yeah. in a square hole or whatever, you know? Right. Well, then at, at a certain point, it doesn't become an interpretation that becomes kind of like a rubric. Right. And uh, there's, there's really kind of a lacking of interpretations uh, on podiums, I think. At every at, at every level, I think people would agree. Um, there's a lot of kind of like milk toast performances that are a result of a milk mm -hmm. toast um, requirement. Big time. Yeah, I was I was going to say uh, earlier that we're sort of uh, we have a tough job with trying to make the audience pay attention to us. And, and pay attention to us in a way where they would notice these things. Because I think the first time concert goer or the average concert goer would be able to pick up on some of the things that we're talking about. But it's a, it's a problem of, of attention. I, I think even we see it in ourselves. I mean, you, you talked about being a teenager and I, I, don't even, I don't even know when was the first, I mean, it was later on that the first concert I was like, oh, I'm actually in it. I'm paying attention. I'm aware where it wasn't a performance that I was a part of because it's easier for me to tap into, okay, this is, this could be the last time I ever play this. Let's tap into that mentality rather than, you know, than being in the, in the audience and, and trying to tap into that even as a, as a musician, especially a, one that's working all the time. Yeah. So how do we, how do we get audiences to pay that close of attention? I mean, I, I think the educational part of it is, is where people want to go with it. So they're like, here, there's all these details and that, that we know about that you don't know about yet. Yeah. But I don't think that's, yeah, I don't think that's the right way to go about it. I just, but, but that's a really tough question to answer. I don't know what you're supposed to do about that to make I an individual pay attention to us. People want program notes because I think it helps them grasp on to something. And I think, again, for a certain concert goer, especially like experienced concert goers, knowing some background is deepening your understanding of the piece and it's actually valuable. And it's part of like a well-balanced diet as a concert goer. But mm -hmm. I don't know if like most people, it really depends on the orchestra. Uh, in their audience. I don't know if most people are subscribers, usually at like a, a subscription concert, but you want to at least imagine that everybody is a first time concert goer. 
But I think something that's been really fascinating about playing for empty concert halls the last few months is you really do notice how much the audience contributes to the quality of a concert and the quality of your experience. Um, because it's one thing to be playing rehearsals and knowing like there's not an audience there, like they'll, they'll be here. But actually performing for an empty hall, um, it's not the same. And luckily in Detroit, we've been able to do live broadcasts. So there is kind of this onus of like, this is live and this is serious. But at a certain point when uh, these corona, coronavirus numbers were lower, um, we were able to have like 20, 25 audience members in, like sitting in the box seats. And even just having 20, 25 people in the hall felt like this connection uh, between you and somebody that you're playing for. At least I'm speaking for myself personally. And I think at its best, it's, there's no difference between the listener and the orchestra. There's like all one experience happening. And like I was saying, like my favorite part about playing the orchestra is this feeling of kind of disappearing and turning into a larger thing. And I think I've noticed that the audience is central to that. Um, so you wanna be like, we have to be doing what we're doing for the audience and for ourselves. Um, like, it, the whole piece becomes a big thing that everybody's witnessing together. And I think that's the power in it. It, it kind of like gives this like larger musical consciousness to the entire room. Um, and it's why there's no substitution for a live performance. But if you can feel like this like deeper melting away and this like raised consciousness as a player and you're thinking of it, you're feeling the piece as this thing, this uh, very powerful energy in the room, it transfers to the audience. And I think we've all had the experience of like, I'll walk out on stage for a concert that we're giving. And luckily we play in like, Hellsburg Hall is such a great place to play. Um, in Kansas City because you know the, the seats wrap around the stage. No seat is that far away. I just feel like you're very aware of the audience. And sometimes I would walk out on stage and feel like this can be a good concert just because you feel the energy in the room. It's primed, it's ready to go. It might've been like a nice day outside. It's like, it doesn't necessarily, I guess it doesn't co correlate with much, but like you can feel a good concert before it happens. Um, and then you know when a good concert is happening internally, it feels like the attention of all of the musicians on stage is turned to 10. And you feel like, you know, time becomes irrelevant. Everything becomes irrelevant. You're not thinking about anything. And I think that impresses itself on the audience that they kind of join in passively or, you know, actively, but as non-musician members of the experience. And then the applause is louder. Like it's, I just feel like the whole thing is obvious when you've had a successful concert for the audience, because it means it was a successful concert for you and the rest of the orchestra on stage. Yeah, I'm remembering a particular concert that we all played together, the Beethoven Four. I don't know if it was my first or second season, but. It was probably your first because you remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> But I can't remember what movement it was. Uh, and, and if I, maybe it was Beethoven 8, it, it doesn't matter, but the audience clapped in between one of the movements, but it was, it was a large part of the audience that, that it wasn't just 
miseducated, you know, it wasn't like they weren't educated on the clap. It's just they felt so, uh, so inclined to clap based on what had happened that they couldn't help themselves. That's totally what happened when he wrote the piece too. Sorry, yeah. I, I am I am pro clapping between movements. I'm don't do or don't, but if you do, great. Because usually yeah. it's because it it was totally intentional. Yeah, like, if it feels if right. If something to it. sounds yeah, if something sounds like a finale with a big crashing, not clapping is like like why mm. uh you know, I, I think it depends on the piece. It definitely depends on the piece. But like, you know, the classic example is Tchaikovsky six. He didn't write the third movement so that you could be quiet. And then, mm -hmm. you know, he, he he wrote it so that people would be, yeah, and then da, da, da. it's just like a knife through your heart. Like, oh yeah. It's not oh. Yeah, know. let's encourage the audience to actually interact with us when they when it <laughs> when it feels right. Well certainly <laughs> why is that a problem? I, you know, I think so much about an orchestra concert can be stifling and like, why would you turn up the stifle meter? Mm -hmm. Why? It's the same thing to me with like the saying, like the, the little things that people think they know about symphonic performance pisses me off. It's the same thing with the like catch all like, oh, just taper. Can we all just taper more? Like as like a substitute for real phrasing. It's the same thing like the don't clap between movements is like, something that people latch on to is like, oh, I feel like I'm in the know now. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, rather than like really understanding and appreciating the music, they're more interested in like knowing the, the culture around it. Yeah. Well, and I think that there is an audience member that will glare. I mean, every, there's probably a dozen at least in every audience where somebody's clapping when you're not supposed to, and they'll glare at you and, you know, Mm -hmm. especially you know, the person that's most likely to clap between movements doesn't go to a lot of concerts. So if you're an audience member that's glaring when people are clapping, please don't. Yeah, please, that please. And the, it's things like that or things like, well, actually it's not flutist, it's flautist. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's so old fashioned, but people who know nothing about classical music know those things and like, well, bring them up at parties or whatever. And yeah. it's like, also, it, it's both, it's, it's flutist or flautist. Like that's not even true. Also, yeah, somebody, what are these, somebody, somebody would say that. What are these people thinking that somebody's gonna come out or somebody's gonna talk to them after the concert and be like, oh my God, thank you for telling that person. No, you, you give back your program and then they give you a letter grade <laughs> and they give you an A plus <laughs> if, you, if you glared at somebody for clapping. Yeah. No, I like, I think it's, it's a hard time to be an audience member in a lot of like, it's so, we live in a very, very, very distractible world where there, your phone could be pinging at any minute and uh, everything is, um, everything is trying to get your attention and designed to distract you. And sitting down and listening to an orchestral piece with full attention is difficult, so like, anything that feels stifling about an orchestral concert as an audience member should be examined. And I think there's been a good faith effort in doing that, but um, I've always, I mean, to go back to it, my, over the past few years, I've really um, kind of, I think the biggest problem can be the musicians playing kind of 75%. 
and we need to play 100%. And it can be hard to sustain that over a whole season, but like, or even over speaking personally, yeah, yeah, I mean, you might be real tired by Sunday, but um, going like listening back to recordings, I've been listening to some of the some of the concerts that we've done here since the pandemic started, and it's with video, like 4K videos, so you can see everything, um, and sometimes there will be a shot where I'm playing and I look kind of uncommitted and I get really bothered by it. And like, I want, that's like my next goal is to never play that way. What's your commitment phase? What's that? What's your commitment phase like? (laughs) (laughs) Is it bass face? I think everybody's familiar with bass face, right? It's like furrow and brow, you're like. Is that that part of stank face? Like, just like. It's stank face? Yeah. I mean, there's. There, I think there are different moments in the repertoire that could certainly qualify for Stank Face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Probably a lot of Brahms symphonies, actually. But um, yeah, I, I, if if I'm not playing at 100%, it's not helping anybody. Um, yeah, uh, and I think I'm starting to understand more and more that specifically it's not helping the audience because if they're looking at somebody that looks statuesque they're going to start thinking about their grocery list or something that somebody said earlier in the day. Um, it is you, contagious you to, too, that, yes. that, that feeling. Cause I know when I'm sitting next to somebody who's playing like that, that I want to play more like that. And also the conductor feels that and wants to give more. And I think it's just all connected that way. Well, in so. this like relating back to like the audience and orchestra being one giant, kind of consciousness in a concert you can feel when people in the orchestra are kind of thinking and then you can also feel the audience kind of like thinking about other things mm-hmm. and then the opposite when you when you feel really committed and you feel like the orchestra is committed you feel the audience is kind of committed and it's like there's really no barrier actually and this is why i've like more and more come to appreciate how powerful and awesome a concert is because it's like this one big giant mind um, shared by you know, 2,000 people, hopefully 2,000. Is that even possible in Hillsburg Hall? Maybe be like 1,800 or 1,700. Yeah. But yeah, like just play from your heart and mean it. And uh, you know, classical music appreciation and fandom will come with that. Hear that kids? <laughs> Yeah, it's about that time. Thanks for joining us, Brandon. Yeah, yeah. man. Thanks for making the time. Really appreciate yeah. it. Nice to see you guys. Yeah, I miss having the random philosophical conversations just every day after work. So Yeah, this is how we always talk. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes right there's alcohol now. involved, but yeah. Maybe. All right. Have a good one. All right. Yeah, take care. That was episode two of the Sound Control Podcast with Brandon Mason. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe. And if you would like, send me a direct message with any feedback. uh, Instagram at Caleb J. Quillen or Sound Control Pod. I'm just trying to figure out how to do this. (laughs) And I've just enjoyed these conversations and I thought I should record. But thanks again for listening and be well.